You're listening to Dene Talk, a podcast telling contemporary indigenous stories of resilience, resistance, and resurgence. On today's episode, we're going to explore a tableau of two different indigenous women's experiences. Shaylee is a 20-something queer, working for her community of Laxon, and she also performs as a burlesque dancer under the moniker of Scarlet Hummingbird. Gwen is a Decho Dene and Cree Métis psychologist, and after a number of years of successfully practicing privately, she gave it all up to return to school and complete her PhD. We're going to hear stories about the violence that Indigenous women face and the barriers that they experience every day living in a colonial society. And we're going to hear about how through their work and their craft and their connection to their indigeneity, they empower themselves and their communities. This is episode one. It's called Resilience. Today's episode deals with discussions of violence, sexual assault, and other topics that may be potentially triggering. Listener discretion is advised. This is Shaylee Robinson. And she is Coast Salish. I'm from the Lyxon First Nation, which is located in the Couchin Valley in the Gulf Islands. I also have uh, lineage to many other Coast Salish nations. And so my great grandmother is Joyce Moody, uh, who comes from the Warren family here in Sanhees territory and the Moody family over in Squamish territory. And my great grandfather is the late. Uh, Clifford Thomas, who um, comes from Lyaxon and Couchin tribes, which is in Couchin territory in the Couchin Valley. She lives on the beautiful, traditional, and unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people and the Wasainich people, known as Victoria. I like to joke that I've been in Victoria since the womb. She's a Capricorn, and she's had a substantial professional career. Oh, man. So I've had a wild (laughs) career. To list some of the jobs that she's had so far, she's worked in student governance at the local, provincial, and national level. She's the executive director at the Victoria Poetry Project, a position she's held since 2018. And she's worked for the BC government as a junior policy advisor. I worked for Carol Jeans in her constituency office for about two and a half years. She's worked for the BC Royal Museum. The Knowledge Branch as a, (laughs) this is the longest title I've ever had, a cultural learning programming facilitator. And now she works for her nation as a community preventions officer. I'm working for my nation, which is probably the best thing ever. (laughs) She's a spoken word poet and a burlesque performer. My stage name is Scarlet Hummingbird. This is... Gwendolyn Donna Villabrin. And she is a registered psychologist. Full disclosure, she's also my auntie. Can I can I call you honey now? She was inspired to enter psychology because I just feel like with grandma and Mushum's influence uh, from an early age, I knew I wanted to serve the community and be a help to people. And I also kind of recognize the importance of uh, being in that role of Um, being an advocate and kind of supporting those who maybe struggle with with having their own voice. I wanted to talk to her because not only is she one of the smartest people I know, but she also has an illustrious professional and scholarly career. She holds a master's of science in counseling psychology. And after a number of years of practicing, 
she's returned to school to complete a PhD at the University of Alberta. How's that been so far? <laughs> I'm a sucker for sucker for punishment. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cause as you know, I mean I had fifteen years, you know, out, outside of school and mm-hmm. um, you know, was, you know, working and and had a very successful and thriving practice private practice I had a beautiful office on the (laughs) river valley did you ever see my office Gwen and Shaylee are both driven professionally they've worked extensively to better themselves and they're deeply committed to giving back to their communities Shaylee's connection to Lyaxon is deeply personal we go over on little boats and as soon as I can see the island I start to Every time I just start to well up. It's really emotional and really powerful for me. I'm starting to well up now. Lyaxon <laughs> um, is a small nation. We have just over 200 members. Most of our membership lives between Victoria and Nanaimo, but we do have quite a few members who live on the lower mainland, some who are back in Ontario, and then quite a few who are down in Washington and Lummi. Um, so this is... Lyaxon is also known as Valdez Island. It's located between Galliano and Gabriola Islands, and it's one of the Gulf Islands in the Salish Sea off the coast of Vancouver Island. Valdez Island is essentially split up into thirds. thirds. Essentially, one third of it is our land, one third is crown land, and one third is private land. And our third is comprised of three reserves that aren't connected to each other and are of varying sizes. We're going to hear more about Lyaxon a little later, but for Gwen growing up, Grappling with her identity was difficult in her youth. I I felt like I kind of had to hide it. You know, it was almost like I was, it was a secret, like um, something that I needed to try to keep private and secret. It was shameful to Mm -hmm. be Indigenous. And so it was really just about trying to pass. Her friends and the Indigenous women she interviewed for her master's thesis actively hid their indigeneity. The cold, hard reality is rather than face the overt racism in Canadian society, Indigenous people would actively work to obscure their heritage. About how they would lie to people and say, oh, I'm French. You know, I got a French last name and that's that's who I, who I am, right? They wouldn't mention their, their Indigenous um, heritage as part of who they are. And so that was kind of, you know, in some ways when I look back to how I was as a young person growing up, I really felt like I was walking on eggshells just trying not to be noticed for the fact that I am Indigenous. And I think there's good reason for that. A 2017 StatsCan report found that Indigenous women make up 4% of all women in Canada, but they make up 22% of homicide cases. Indigenous women are more likely to face violence from their spouses and perpetrators known to them. Indigenous women, femmes, queer, trans, and two-spirit folks continue to face a double jeopardy, of colonial, patriarchal violence, and lateral violence from within their communities. This is something Gwen internalized as she completed her master's. The hardest part at that time is that where I was at in my life is I didn't really value myself as it was, like as a young Indigenous woman. Hmm. And then on top of that, I didn't really feel valued, right, in in terms of, you know, what I brought to academia. Like Like I felt like you know, like it just wasn't, you know, there wasn't that opportunity yet for me to 
um, or for voices to be heard, for indigenous voices to be heard. Shaylee grew up with lateral violence. I grew up with quite a bit of trauma. Um, One of my mom's partners was abusive in every sense of the word, and I witnessed some truly horrendous things as a kid and experienced some truly horrendous things. Another dark reality for Indigenous women is that they are three times as likely to experience violence from their spouse than non-Indigenous women. And as a result, have an anxiety disorder and have probably struggled with depression since I was a little kid, but we didn't know until I was 16. Uh, So it's been about 10 years of consciously working with that, and that can get in the way of just about anything. As I think most people know, (laughs) mental health can absolutely be a barrier. Growing up in a violent environment is an unfortunate reality for many Indigenous children. A study from 2014 found that 21% of Indigenous participants self-reported witnessing violence by their parent, step-parent, or legal guardian, compared to 10% of non-Indigenous participants. And this can lead to higher rates of depression, anxiety, and other mental health issues for Indigenous people. For instance, Indigenous people's suicide rates are three times that of non-Indigenous people in Canada, according to a national household survey from StatsCan. Um, Well, there's this thing that a lot of women experience, and then on top of that, especially if you're a BIPOC woman called imposter syndrome, uh, where you're doing a thing and you feel like you don't have the right to be there. And I have absolutely struggled with that my entire life. And especially if I'm in a position of leadership or I'm holding authority in some way, uh, always feeling like, no, you don't belong here, Um, which sucks. And I try to work through it, but it's it's ever present because of the cishet white patriarchy. Imposter syndrome is something that I've struggled with as well. It's something I feel like a lot of Indigenous people struggle with. Issues of not feeling worthy, not being enough, not deserving positions of power or deserving of happiness. For Gwen. my experience, it was very much grounded in the fact that I was Indigenous, right? So it was, it was, you know, I was, I was constantly fed messages that Indigenous people don't belong, right? And so with that um, messaging, um, it affects how you feel about yourself. So it's, it wasn't just psychological for me where I felt like I was an imposter um, and I'm not really. It was actually literally true right that i was told that i was an imposter even with these barriers that are common for a lot of indigenous people shaylee found ways of overcoming these through the connection to her family and her nation i'll have some moments where i'm really low i'm like i can't do the thing and then i'm like no remember where you come from remember all the chiefs who are walking with you your ancestors who are looking down on you like you not looking down who are you know (laughs) watching and lifting you up you can do the thing you you caught really strong blood you can make anything happen for gwen it was her older sister your mom always pushed me always encouraged me to be more than what i thought i could be she did that like when i was a child um like she would send me books that you know, were far too heady for me, but it sent me the message that, you know, I could read these books if I really, <laughs> you know, put my mind to it. And and the fact that she had that faith in me, right, that I, I could learn and I could be something, right? She always encouraged that. Do you remember that song, Tracy Chapman, She's Got Her Ticket? 
She's got her ticket. I think she's gonna use it. I think she's gonna fly away. Remember that song? So anyways, it's all about, you know, young woman kind of um, flying out beyond, you know, her current circumstances. Right. And mm -hmm. so I was sleeping in as teenagers usually do. And your mom would blast that song full tilt <laughs> to, get, to get me out of bed. <laughs> but always, always, always trying to push me. And then I remember even when I was thinking about going to school and I was thinking about social work because I really like the social justice angle of social work. And it was your mom who said, why be a social worker when you can be a psychologist? So, <laughs> like, honestly, like, if your mom hadn't said that, I would have applied to be a social worker. Hmm. And so I, I kind of, and not to minimize or put down social workers mm -hmm. or anything being less than, but it was just kind of like her her push. And, I'm, and I think to this day, well, if she had said, why be a social worker, why not be a medical doctor? Like, maybe I would have been a medical doctor. <laughs> Kinship ties are crucial for Indigenous people. Family can help push you to action as well as connect you to your homelands. For Shaylee, her connection is... It's really grounding for me and a really good reminder of where I come from, um, what my people have been through, how resilient we are, and the work that lies ahead, um, especially in making a better future for our younger generations. And, you know, I always also look at the lens of making the world a better place for my little siblings. And this is something that I find common amongst my Indigenous friends. There's a drive to make the world a better place for each other. Yes, because I think that really um, attaches or connects to that value of of anything that we do. We're thinking about others, um, that, that the value of, of being uh, from that system, kind of a collectivist worldview in, in many ways. Shaylee is an A-type personality, like a hummingbird, like the namesake of her stage name. Hummingbirds are super busy, they're flooding around, which is something I definitely identify with because I take on all the things and I don't know how to say no. Um, <laughs> but also nurturing and being there for people because you're doing all of those things um, and taking on a lot of community care, which is something that I identify with for sure. Shaylee's extensive career, she's gathering experience and expertise. So I'm gaining a lot of skills and knowledge there, and I have experience working in treaty and Indigenous governance, which I hope to be able to bring to my community as well. Laxon is currently going through... Currently in a process called an addition or an incremental treaty agreement, um, where basically, because we're still involved... The incremental treaty agreement, or ITA, allows for the possibility of Laxon to gain a small amount of traditional territory here on Vancouver Island with the potential for more with the formal treaty agreement. Currently, they don't have anyone that lives on their territory full-time. We have a couple staff members who will go over um, for a few days at a time to do like maintenance and taking care of the island, lots of care work. Um, and some of those staff members are community members as well, but we don't have anyone who resides there full-time. The ITA would allow them to have an accessible homeland. They would be able to inhabit permanently. And, and for us, that, that kind of involves building a municipality from scratch on this new chunk of land um, and eventually the island as well. Eventually, Shaylee dreams of her nation. Eventually have 
full ownership of Lyaxin. So having that crown land be returned to us and then having the first right of sale for private land once it becomes available. So we absolutely do envision that. I'm not sure if I'll see it in my lifetime, but it doesn't mean we're not going to work towards it. Gwen worked with Alberta Tour of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I was part of the health support team, and our role was really to just be available to all the people that were giving their uh, public and private statements, as well as supporting the commissioners um, who had to listen to all of these stories. Uh, so we were there to sit with people as they shared their stories. She heard story and, after and story. Northern Alberta to Southern Alberta. The stories of residential school survivors. And, um, and to hear the pain and also to see the courage of these people being willing to say, um, to, to speak out, you know, what their experiences were. In our family, we have three generations of residential school survivors. So we have Mushum and then we have his grandpa and then on mom's side we have grandma and she was hearing these intimate stories and witnessing the strength and vulnerability she heard about how residential schools impacted indigenous peoples and and, you know the most emotional or the touching part was when people would share about how it affected their ability to parent you know that's when the emotions would really come and that was what was so touching for me is you know, people really sharing about how they regretted, you know, that they couldn't be the parents to their children that they, um, they wanted to be because of the pain, the trauma that they had experienced and also, you know, or inherited from their parents. In 2018, Studies in Brain Sciences, an MDPI journal, World Psychiatry, the official journal of the World Psychiatrist Association, and the USA National Academy of Sciences, independently of one another, came to the conclusion that generational trauma can be expressed epigenetically. In other words, abuse your parents and grandparents faced can and does impact your body and how your body functions. I've seen that even in the clients that I worked with too, like so many of my clients would say to me, you know, I'm doing this work, I'm doing this hard healing work because I want my, I want, to leave a better life for my children, right? I don't want to pass this on. And, um, and so that to me was probably the, the biggest, most touching thing for me is, mm-hmm. is how these people would do the most difficult of thing, which is to bear their, their soul in this public way. Like not everyone, some people did it private, but even in, in a private um disclosure they were videotaped right so it was still kind of public when they did their private statements and um but the courage for them to do that and it all came from that place of i want better for my children and i want better for my grandchildren 
Generation to generation, the scars of colonial violence get passed down. During her time at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, she witnessed the strength of residential school survivors, sharing their truths, sharing their stories. She felt called to act. So it was actually from the TRC that that the inspiration for my dissertation topic kind of came to be. And with the help of her husband. And I blame your uncle, Chad, for this to this day because we were moving in and everything. And from my office, you could see the University of Alberta across the river. And, uh, and your uncle Chad said, oh, it's so great you have your office here. So when you start your PhD, you can just trek across the river and go to school and then come back here and, and work. <laughs> At the time, she had a very successful private practice. Yes, yeah, that's right. So I I landed there. I landed there and I was like, whoa, here I am. <laughs> I've, I've made it. This is it, the pinnacle. I was, you know, it's like everything that I'd worked so hard for. But she was restless. It was like, oh my gosh, this isn't the pinnacle. This isn't this isn't what I want. This isn't what I want. There's more. There's more to life, you know. And um, I just wasn't. I wasn't satisfied. I was restless. And um, as much as you know, I loved the work that I did. I felt called. I felt called primarily by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, mm-hmm. and um, and the work that I did there, and the stories that I was witness to and the people that I supported, I was, um, I just, I couldn't sit, I, cu- I couldn't just do the work that I was doing as, as valuable and important as it was because I was primarily serving um, indigenous people and their families who were impacted by the residential schools. Um, I, I wanted to do more and I wanted to um, challenge myself in terms of Um, supporting all the voices I was hearing because after the TRC that you know indigenous people were talking more and more indigenous people were talking and and more and more indigenous people were uh, voicing um, that things need to change and um, and I wanted I wanted to be a part of that and so that's what eventually kind of led me back to letting go of my private practice and and going back to school. For the 15 years of her private practice, she was primarily working with Indigenous peoples. She was seeing the effects of intergenerational trauma and how it played out on the community. And people were talking, sharing their truths. She felt like she needed to act. As she was going through the process of applying for her PhD, something unexpected happened. She was getting interviewed by her advisor, she asked me, okay, tell me emotionally how it affected you, which was, you know, relatively easy to explain emotionally how I was affected. And just to take a quick levity break for my aunt, the registered psychologist, of course, it was easy for her to talk about her emotions and feelings. And then she asked, how, how do you feel it's affected you physically? And it just hit her. And it was in that moment that it, it, it kind of came out, out of me that I, I felt like my, my struggle to be able to have a child, my infertility, was connected to this generational history of the Indian residential schools and, and kind of the bombardment of, of messaging that I had, had been on, on me in terms of feeling like as an Indigenous woman, I would not be a good mom. 
And that was messaging that I think was, um, I picked up on just in terms of, you know, knowing about the dispro disproportionate number of Indigenous children who are put in care and um, hearing from, you know, people about the struggles of, you know, the gaps in their parenting and, and kind of feeling like they were failing, right? And, mm -hmm. and so there was this worry inside of me, you know, that I inherited. And then also, I think my belief too, is that the legacy of the residential schools of, of rem the removal of children, I feel also left an imprint on me, um, you know, physically. Mm -hmm. And so it was in that moment that I said that, and, and then that's, you know, always stayed with me. And, and of course, it's a very personal topic. I mean, it's not um, an easy thing to talk about. Um, but I feel it's important because we need to hear from Indigenous people about how, what intergenerational trauma, how intergenerational trauma gets lived. Mm -hmm. We need to hear these stories. And they come out in these stories that you wouldn't you wouldn't usually imagine, right? So for, you know, I don't think people think about linking um, infertility to intergenerational trauma necessarily, right? But that's that's a story I wanted to tell. I know, Shaylee, because we're both involved in spoken word poetry. So in 2011, I started attending uh, spoken word poetry shows at what used to be the Solstice Cafe. There were tons of fire in Vixlam. R.I.P. Right? If you know, you know. Her journey with performance art started there. Which was terrifying. Knees shake every time I started hosting shows. That still would not go away. Always, always so nervous. She got involved on the administrative side becoming the executive director of the Victoria Poetry Project in 2018. And she started going to burlesque shows for the first time. When I was working at Starbucks, a coworker of mine uh, brought me to a burlesque show, and I had no idea what it was, um, to see a friend of ours perform. And I was like, I don't know what's happening, but people are taking their clothes off on stage. There's glitter, there's confetti, there's feathers. I like this. She ended up looking into classes with local legend, Rosie Bits. And she started offering these classes called Learn to Love Your Jiggly Bits. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And I thought, you know, this looks like a really rad class. It's like all about loving yourself, be more comfortable with your physical body, and like maybe learning some sexy things. And she ended up going to a couple of Rosie's shows. Uh, where she performs with a band, she sings, she tells stories, she strips, she has guest performers who strip as well. And I was like, this, this is, this is cool. She made time in her busy schedule and signed herself up for some courses. I went to my first class, and the first class was just talking and saying, hey, this is the history of burlesque. 
this is what I want to teach you. This is what you can become. And I was like, holy crap. I was not anticipating becoming a performer of any kind. I just wanted to like feel good about my body. She had her apprehensions about performing. But I did. And I loved it. And at first, she was nervous. I moved through my choreography way too quickly because I was so nervous. And everyone's like, Shaylee, slow down. Like, you gotta wait for your cues. Like, you developed this. It's okay. You know what you're doing. But eventually. And when I was performing, I felt so comfortable on stage. There were no shaky knees. I was having the time of my life. And I actually realized at one point that I was behind in my choreo. I was going too slow. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Let's speed this right up. And so I finished my act and I went off stage and I was like, this needs to be part of my life. Um, yeah, that's non-negotiable. I, I need to do this again. And so, yeah, Scarlet was officially birthed. With the creation of Shaylee's burlesque performance, it was a way for her to not only reclaim her body, but also her narrative. I am a survivor of multiple sexual assaults. And um, as a fat girl, I've always had a difficult relationship with my body. Um, but in burlesque, it's really, really healing and it's really empowering. And, you know, I'm up there on that stage. I'm wearing whatever I want. Everyone is paying attention to me and what I'm doing. And they only see what I let them see. And I can take that back at any second. Nobody gets to touch me. They are purely there to witness. Harmful myths such as the squaw or Indian princess the use of indigeneity in Halloween costumes or movies like Pocahontas or Peter Pan, they all work to create this myth of Indigenous women and girls as lewd, dirty, and sexually deviant. This leads to objectification, sexualization, and violence against Indigenous women, femmes, queer, trans, and two-spirit folks. A StatsCan report from 2018 found that Indigenous women were three times as likely to be survivors of sexual assault. It's actually something I struggled with at the beginning of my burlesque journey. It was like, you know, Indigenous women are so sexualized, um, and that leads to so much violence. Like, am I perpetuating that by doing this work? Um, and I was introduced to a troupe called Virgo Nation, and they're the only all-Indigenous, well, I don't think they're the only one now, but at the time, they're the only all-Indigenous burlesque troupe in uh, Canada. You know, they tackled that as well. And I, you know, read some interviews with them and they were like, no, like, fuck that. We're taking the narrative back um, and we're we're reclaiming it. And we're showing you that this is what Indigenous sexuality can look like because sexuality is something that everyone has, regardless of where you come from. And it's a healthy and normal part of being human. And it's time to change the narrative and kind of flip the script. And I was like, yeah. It's a way for Shaylee to take back control of her sexuality, her body, and her indigeneity. One of the acts she developed with Rosie's intermediate course expounded upon that idea. I really wanted to do something that reclaimed my indigeneity as well as my body. She gathered that energy and put it into this act called Reclamation. Originally, envisioned this act being kind of like cheeky set to Lawn Hair Don't Care by Snow Nose Res Kids and it was going to be you know like kind of playing on history and indigenous kids being forced to cut their hair off when they were at residential school and then like pulling the swig on being like haha just kidding because at this time my hair was down to my waist. Uh, I have long hair and colonization is not going to take that away from me. She felt like something was missing, like she wanted to go deeper. So I was like, okay, I need something like fun and sexy. 
I'm going to look through Tanya Tagak's music because um, she's this incredible Inuk throat singer and definitely plays with sexuality a lot in her music. She came across a song that Tanya Tagak and Iskwe collaborated on called Unforgotten. It's a very intense song, very, very beautiful um, about, you know, being the unforgotten. You know, we're here. You can't take us away that kind of thing and I was like okay this is the song and I need to change the act entirely so she changed it the way the act starts is I'm center stage in like a school uniform looking kind of thing from the 50s um sitting on a folding chair and uh stage left uh just ahead of me there's a table covered in cedar boughs and it has my cedar hat And so the lights come up and I'm looking around because I see the hat and I want to go up to it, but it's like, I'm not allowed to touch it. So I'm looking to see if anybody's around. No one's around. So I go over to it. I pick up the hat. I'm about to put it on. And then um, a white friend who is very willing to take on this role, (laughs) uh, dressed as a school teacher, reminiscent of residential school teachers, comes up to me and tries to take the hat away from me. And we have a bit of a tug of war. And... I win. I take my hat back. I put it down and I push her away. And then the music starts. And it's, you know, focusing a lot on breath work and coming back into myself and slowly like removing my clothing. And each time I take something off, it's a reconnection with that part of my body. Um, And utilizing that chair um, that represents schools and there's one point where I come up from behind and I stomp on it and I'm doing all sorts of things on it I'm taking it back and at the end uh, I put my hat back on and I breathe and I walk off a lot of Shaylee's burlesque work is like that subvertive political and angry one of the most powerful performances of my life and will always stick with me um, was in September of last year at the Coxsila Music Festival Coxsila Music Festival is an excellent community-driven festival held on Cowitzin territory. The festival gets its name from the Coxsila River, which feeds into Tilapolis, which is Holquinum for what is also known as Cowichan Bay. Holquinum is also what Shaley's people of Laxon speak, their neighboring nations. And we were specifically performing on the stage in the chapel. And so I was like, okay, wow, I'm performing in a chapel at the site of a former residential school in neighboring territory. This is really, really intense. The room is packed, full to the brim. To the brim, there are people spilling out into the hallway. Uh, that's how many people want to see it. And right now during COVID times, it's kind of a scary thought, like, oh my God, that's so many people. But back then it was like, ah, but also kind of scary. Shaylee's the first act and she's nervous, but she's ready. It starts. This act, you know, starts with me on stage and lights come up and there's no music until I push away my colonizer is the name of the role. Um, And then the music starts. And so, you know, everything started. It went really smoothly. I push away my colonizer. I start breathing. I take off my cardigan. And then the music stops. And I kind of laugh and I don't really know what to do. And then they say, it's okay, it's okay, we'll start from the beginning. Shaylee just laughs, shakes it off, and starts again. And so we just start the music part from the beginning, and so I kind of improvise a little bit, um, and then the music stops again. At the same part. What is happening? 
are there some bad spirits here? And just to remind you, this is happening in the chapel of a former residential school. Shaylee's trying not to panic. This crowd was quite large, but it was also really meaningful because I had friends in that crowd, Indigenous friends, some elders. Um, Deb George, who I've known since I was 17. And the music is just not working. So the MC just starts clapping, like, along to the beat. And the whole audience just joined in. And oh, I'm getting goosebumps again. And I just kind of improvised the rest of my act because, of course, it wasn't the full song. It was just the opening beats. Um, but that was beautiful and so powerful. And It was a technical error that ended up getting fixed. But it was also this important moment. But I look at it as, you know, like that was a really intense and powerful thing to begin with. And that place had some really bad history and some bad spirits there and I needed my community to reclaim that with me and we reclaimed that space together through that and yeah I don't know if I'll ever do anything quite as intense (laughs) performance wise but Sometimes when we think about the past and we revisit it with a critical eye, then things can become illuminated. In hindsight, like now, when I look back, there was a lot of implicit exposure to what it means to be Indigenous. So, for instance, like you mentioning um, Auntie Lucy and Auntie Annie and um, Auntie Rosie, like the whole Isaac family, so grandma's Mm -hmm. family, you know, were very rich in terms of what they passed on. And a lot of the cultural teachings that I was raised in was about relationships and about family and the importance of that and um, and the the connection to spirit and to land um, and that things need to be done in a certain way. you know, these are the kind of teachings that that now, later in my life, I go back and I reflect on and it's like, wow, very, very impactful. Gwen says she remembers walking with her father, my Mushum, which is grief for grandfather. She was walking out. Uh, one time when I was, I think, around 11 or 12 and we were out in the bush outside of Yellowknife. And I remember we were out walking and you remember the terrain, right? The pre- mm-hmm. Precambrian rock and the rocky terrain and, yeah. and the, the, the small bushes, but they're still... I do. Still... I was born in Yellowknife and the train she's talking about, it brings back memories of being a small child. Around Yellowknife, there are a lot of rocks, thick bush, trees, and water. The land is Denaday, our people's homeland. And though I'm far away, living on the West Coast, when I hear about it, my heart aches for home. Precambrian rock and the rocky terrain and yeah. and then the the small bushes, but there's still it's quite still dense, right? Mm-hmm. And so we were walking out there, and and I don't think we were very far from his cousin Agatha's cabin, I think at the time, and we were went out walking in the bush, and we were walking, and I was just 
you know, talk. We were just talking and I was just enjoying my time with my dad. And then Mushin suddenly stops. He looks at Gwen seriously and says, Okay, uh, lead, lead us back home. Lead us back to the camp. And I kind of laughed at him like, what are you talking about? I'm not going to, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't even paying attention to anything, right? Because I was so engrossed in our conversation. Mushim doesn't laugh, just sternly looks at her to lead them back. And Gwen was panicking. So then I turned and, and looked and I said, Dad, I can't do that. I don't know. I don't know the way back. You know, and I remember feeling a little bit panicky and a little bit like, oh, like, I don't want to do this. But Mushim said, look again. And so I, I remember I looked and it was like almost literally like I, I put on these glasses and then all of a sudden I could see the path from which we came. And mm. it was it was almost like it was lit up, like it almost seemed like, I don't know, don't think it was that dramatic, but <laughs> it almost like the path just lit up in front of me and I could literally see where we just came from. And so I said, I think here. And he said, yeah. And so we started walking in that direction and we kept walking and he's like, okay, now where? And and so I started looking and, and then and then he started pointing things out to me. He's like, notice if there are scuffs on the lichen and notice if there's any broken branches. And so we're walking and, and literally as we're walking, I can see totally where we came from. Mm-hmm. And as we were going, he was pointing out all these kind of land-based uh, clues, right? That kind of spoke to where we came from. And so finally, when we got back to the camp, I was like, so proud of myself <laughs> for being able to see this pathway and um and he said I'm, I'm glad you know you you did that and i'm you know and basically said these are important skills if you ever get lost in the bush you can always find your way home mm-hmm. and i think that you know that's just an example of you know one of the multiple teachings that you know it's not explicit it's not about a certain ceremony or a certain um, um, cultural experience in our family. It's, it's just a very subtle, very gentle teaching that Musham passed on to me at that time and how it built my sense of confidence, how it built and it built kind of my sense of um, knowing that I could read the land you know a little bit better than maybe i could before that there are always clues of where you've been right Mm -hmm. and that you can always find your way home which that in itself is is a big big lesson that uh you know can stay with someone for the rest of their life yeah so i think you know connecting to what it means to be indigenous i think always thinking about where you come from, always thinking about your home and these small teachings. You know, like some people might think that our cultural connection is something really big, you know, and and performative and not necessarily, right? It's about the things that happen at the kitchen table. And, um, you know, that that's to me what it what that is, what Mm -hmm. that means. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Our connection to our indigeneity is something big and performative, literally, like Shaylee's burlesque. Or sometimes it's small, like the teaching of your father, how to read the land. 
and maybe sometimes it's something in the middle. The colonial government of Canada has tried to erase Indigenous people from these lands through state violence, residential schools, disease, the 60s scoop, the banning of cultural practices, the erasure of land, culture, and people. They sought to destroy the Indian within us, to make way for the settler state, but it didn't work. Though we carry the scars of colonialism, the intergenerational trauma passed down generation to generation, I think we also carry the gifts of our ancestors. Just like the connection through our DNA, I think these bonds are passed down, generation to generation. And though we have all suffered at the hands of colonialism, we are strong and we are resilient. There is a Cheyenne proverb that states, a nation is not conquered until the hearts of its women are on the ground. And to borrow from my Auntie Gwen's master's thesis, the grim statistics of the state of Indigenous women in Canada would seem to imply that the heart of these women are indeed on the ground, and a nation has been conquered. But the results of this investigation point to the contrary. The Indigenous women in this study had the courage to work through their fears and their pain, and by healing themselves, this healing undeniably ripples out to their children, their family, and their communities. We are not conquered. We're still here. And in this installment, we've heard stories of resilience. And next week, we talk about how we fight back. Masi Cho for listening. This is Dene Talk. I'm your host, Cassidy Villabrin Barakis. Dene Talk is written, produced, and edited by myself with the support of Coco Nielsen, Glenn Swarnadipathy, Andrew Hines, and Nicola Watts. Special thanks to the staff and volunteers of CFUV 101.9 FM. The artwork for today's episode is provided by Nicole Neidhardt. And music is done by Sarah, the instrumentalist, Peter Sandberg, and Lars Meyer. Must he chose to my guests for today's episode, Gwen Villabrin and Shaylee Robinson. And a special must Cho to Jordan Cooey and Phoenix Bain for the continual support throughout this project. If you would like to learn more about some of the things we talked about today in Dene Talk, or if you want some links to Shaylee's burlesque work, visit denetalk.ca. Masi Cho for listening. I hope you have a nice day.